0: Bismillah, I'm Allah, I'm Allah, I'm Let's start again inshaAllah, So the first situation is when the enemy is in the direction of the Qibla The Imam, he has uh, the, the contingent divided into two groups, Group A and Group B So both of them, they are going to be facing the Imam with the Imam, praying with the Imam when the Imam, he finishes uh, the ruku of the first Raka'a, Group A, which is directly behind the Imam, they go into the sujood with the Imam, whereas Group B, which are behind the, uh, which are in the second row, we can say, they stand up and they remain facing the enemy, okay? Um, when the Imam, is making sujood with Group A, then uh, Group A, B stands, is standing up, remaining standing up. Once the uh, Imam has got up with Group A for the second Raqqa, then Group B, they go into the Sujood and they make their Sujood. When they finish their Sujood, they get up and they swap places with Group A. So Group B, which was behind uh, the Imam and the first line of soldiers, they now swap with the first line. Okay, They go into the position of Group A. And then what happens, the Imam, he prays with them the second Raka'a, they all make Ruku together. And then the line which is closest to them, which is now group, group B, closest to the Imam, they make Sujud with the Imam. But Group, the second group, which was Group A after they had changed, they don't make Sujud with the Imam. They uh, remain waiting until the Imam and the first group has made Sujud. When Sujud is made by the Imam and the group which is closest to him, Then the group which is behind, they then make sujud, and then they all, both groups, they finish the tashahud and the taslim with the imam. This is the first description, right? Another description is if the enemy is not in the direction of the qibla. The enemy can be any direction. So what the imam, he does, again, he divides them into two groups. So one group he will pray with, and the other group will be standing facing the direction of the qibla. So the Imam, he prays with the first group, one rakah, complete rakah. He stands up and he waits for the group that is praying with him to finish their second rakah by themselves to make the shahut and make the salim. Now this group goes and then takes the place of the group that are facing the enemy, protecting the contingent. The second group now comes and joins the Imam and they pray with the Imam, uh, the second rakah of the Imam, but for them it's going to be the first rakah. And so when the Imam, he's prayed the second raka, he waits in the Tashahud position and this group, be the second group, they pray the second raka for themselves and then they join the Imam in Tashahud and both the Imam and this group, they make uh, Taslim together. So in this situation, the second situation, uh, one group has prayed the first raka with the Imam, then they completed the second raka for themselves and they went and took over from where the other group was facing the enemy and the imam was waiting in the standing position he was waiting in the standing position in the second second rakah so the second group they came and they prayed the second raka with the imam but for them it was the first raka. the imam he remained standing and uh, uh, waiting for them once he prays a rakah with them he goes into tashahud uh, the second group, they get up and they make the second rak'at for themselves and then they rejoin the Imam in Tashahud and both the Imam and the second group, they make the shahud and Taslim with the Imam. This is the sifa chosen by Imam Ahmad, Imam Shafi'i. One of the reasons Imam Ahmad, ta'ala, he chose this sifa was because this is in accordance with the Ayah that we recited first from Sultan Nisa. And it's also uh, narrated authentically by Ibn Abi Hathma in Bukhari Muslim so this was the sifa that Imam Ahmad chose and as Shaykh Fahad al-Mutiri mentioned that there has to be at least three people in each group for this uh, to take place for them to be divided into two groups these are the two main descriptions that I mentioned there are other descriptions one of them is that the Imam he prays with both groups uh, one Okay. He prays with both groups one raka and each of them they finish off the second raka by themselves and this is done uh of course uh, by themselves another description is that the imam he prays with both groups two raka so he prays with group a two raka then they make taslim the and they go off and the other group comes and they pray two raka with the imam and they make taslim the with the imam so what ends up happening as a conclusion is that the Imam, he prays four Raka'a but with one Taslim. Okay, so he ends up praying with both groups, two Raka'a and for the Imam, it's four Raka'a with one Taslim. And like we said, there's all together around six or seven descriptions. I'm not going to mention them all. But the one that we mentioned of Abi Hathma, uh, that was the one which was uh, chosen by Imam Ahmad, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. The author he says, It's recommended for the people, the soldiers, that when they are praying, they carry with them uh, weaponry which is light and it doesn't uh, occupy them from the actions of the Salah uh, in order to defend themselves. So it's recommended that when they are praying, they should carry some light type of weaponry which they could use if uh, need arises and it wouldn't be heavy and complex to the extent that it's going to uh, keep them busy from the prayer. Sheikh Sami ibn Abdurrahman and nahabi he mentions some interesting masail pertaining to this uh, very short section. He says, if the people have prayed Salatul Khawf thinking that the enemy or the danger is close to them, But after the Salah, they come to realise that actually the danger is not as close as we thought, meaning the enemy is not in the vicinity as of yet. Then what they have to do, they have to repeat the Salah in the complete uh, mode, not missing out anything and not changing anything from the Salah. So they could still pray it as two raka'ah if they were travellers, but what they have to do, they have to repeat the Salah and do it in the mode that they normally would do if the enemy was not in the vicinity. And also another thing that is mentioned by the Sheikh he said that some of the Hanbali scholars like Sheikh uh, Ibn Uthaymeen and Ibn Baz rahimullah ta'ala they said that is the fear is so severe at the time of praying salat al-khawf that the person is unable to think about what he is doing he's unable to concentrate because you can imagine in a state of war the situation can get very difficult complex and the person is unable to concentrate so in this situation the Mujahideen, they can delay the Salah until a time when the fear has decreased and they are able to concentrate on the prayer that they are doing. And also this may be in a situation where the soldiers are likely to um, open up a fort, victory is about to be given, and if they were to uh, turn away from, you know, uh, engaging the enemy with full force, then maybe they would lose that victory. So in this situation, they can also delay the Salah and then they can return to the Salah once the victory has been achieved and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. The next uh, important chapter that the author Rahimullah ta'ala that he speaks about, he says Bab Salatil al the chapter pertaining to the issues of Jum'ah. And Juma linguistically, it can be said with a dhamma on the meme, Jumma'a, or it can be said with a sikun on the meme, Jumaa, or it can be said with a fatha on the meme, okay, Jumma'a like this, Jumma'a. Type. So it can be said with the dhamma on the mim. It can be said with the sukun. It can be said with the Al-Fatha. Uh, prior to Islam, it used to have the name as Yomul Aruba. It used to be known as Yomul Aruba amongst the Arabs. Uh, it was in the Prophet's time that it was turned and changed to Yomul Juma. So this Yomul Juma, it's a famous name for us. It's a famous, uh, very extremely important act of worship. A question to yourselves why do you think it might be called yawmul juma' do you know of any reason why it be, might be called yawmul juma' so that is one of the reasons that the ulama they said because li that the people they come together and they congregate together in a jama' in a congregation to pray salatul juma' and this was mentioned by um, ibn hazm rahimallah ta'ala this was his opinion another opinion is that because وَحَوَا اجْتَمَعَ فِي يَوْمِ الجمهة. The Adam and Hawa, السلام, they gathered, they came together on the earth after having been separated and sent down separate. They came together on the earth and found one another. Okay, so the coming together is the meaning which is common uh, in all explanations. And this was mentioned by Ibn Hajr al-Asqalani Another meaning is that uh, Ka'b ibn Lu'ay, uh, prior to Islam, he used to be a chieftain, well respected. He would gather the people uh, from amongst the tribes of the Quraysh etc. And he would remind them about the importance of uh, taking care of the Kaaba and the vicinity of the Haram. And he would also remind them that there was a Prophet which is soon going to be sent. And the fourth reason given by many of the scholars is that Adam That on this day, the creation of Adam from the various parts of the earth were brought together and Adam he was created. And this uh, is an athar, there's an athar, there's a narration pertaining to Abu Harairah radiallahu anhu on this topic. In any case, all of them, they have to do with the gathering of people uh, on this day. And for us, Salatul Jumma, when the community comes together to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then it has the meaning of gathering. Okay, so its, it's directives are found in the Quran and the Sunnah. In the Qur'an, for example, Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta-A'la clearly says in Surah Al-Jum'ah يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا إِذَا نُودِيَ لِصُلَاتِ مِنْ يَوْمِ الْجُمْعَةِ فَسْعَوْا إِلَىٰ ذِكْرِ اللَّهِ O oh, you who believe, if the call is given for the Salah Al-Jum'ah, then rush to it and do not delay. And also in the Hadith in Sahih muslim Ibn Mithsoudin radiyallahu anhu narrates that the Prophet ﷺ said لِقَوْمٍ يَتَّخَلَّفُونَ عَنِ الْجُمْعَةِ He said the Prophet pertaining to a group of people that would uh, remain away from Jummah. He said, He said, Verily, I had a strong intention to command a person from amongst the Muslims who would pray with the people. Then I wanted to set fire the houses of a group of men that would stay away from Jummah. So this shows you that salatul juma is uh, you know something obligatory and commanded by the prophet sallallahu because he would not want to punish a people for not attending it if it had not been obligatory From the virtues of salatul juma and there are many but we'll take one hadith uh, Abu Hurairah he mentions as in Sahih Muslim khayru tala'at alayhi shams yom al-jumu'ah fihi adam wa fihi al وَفِيْهِ أُخْرِجَ مِنْهَا وَلَا إِلَّا فِي يَوْمِ الجمع. The Prophet he said that um, the best day that the sun has ever risen upon is the day of Jummah. The best day that the sun rises upon is the day of Jummah. In it, Adam was created, in it he was entered into Jannah, and in it he was removed from Jannah. And uh, the hour will not be established except on the day of Jummah. The author, may Allah have mercy upon him, he's going to now talk about shurut al-wajub, the conditions pertaining to uh, who it's obligatory upon. Okay, if these uh, matters and descriptions are found, then it's obligatory upon these people. So he says, mukallafin muslim. It's obligatory upon every male who is free and who is mukallaf and who is a Muslim. So we find in the Hadith of Tariq ibn Shihab in Abu Dawood, the Prophet said Al-Jum'atu haqqun wajib muslimin fi jama'atin illa The Prophet said in the, in the Hadith in Muslim in Abu Dawood of Tariq ibn Shihab that Jum'a is an obligation upon every Muslim, <coughs> excuse me, in Jummah, except upon four. He said Abdu'l-Mamluk, except upon the slave, aw Imra'atun or upon the woman صبيعون, or upon the young child مريض, or upon a sick person. Okay, so the Prophet Sallallahu is establishing here that Jummah is obligatory upon every person except for these and the author he mentioned it's obligatory of course upon uh, one who is a male and the Hadith clearly mentioned that women it's not obligatory upon them and the author he mentioned upon Hur the one who is free and the hadith clearly mentioned that it's not obligatory upon one who is uh, in servitude who is a slave and it's also obligatory upon the mukallif the mukallif is the one who is aqil and Balig, the one who has his faculties of uh, intellect about him <clears throat> and the one who is Balig, the one who has reached the age we can say the age of 15 or the age of puberty okay however even if a child has not reached a male child has not reached the age of uh, taklif the, the age of being baligh then it's upon the parents that they instruct the child that he should go to Salatul Juma and he should learn about the the rights and the practices of Salatul Juma. Um, we mentioned that it's obligatory only upon a Muslim now uh, the Khitab al-Wujub the address of it being obligatory is also in a way upon the kufar okay They are mu with تخليف. they are addressed with taklif okay However, this takrif is that first they have to become Muslims but they are still taken into account for not performing the acts of worship which they should perform once they have become Muslim okay? because in the Quran when it says, Okay, this verse and others, uh, some of the ulama, they say that the, it proves that the non-Muslims are still going to be held accountable for the acts of worship that they left off. Okay, so even though they're not um, addressed as being Muslims, they're still going to be taken to account for leaving off the act uh, of worship, and this is going to be a punishment for them. In any case, uh, just as a quick summary, the author, he said it's obligatory upon everybody who is a uh, male and who is a okay, reaches the age of puberty and is free. okay. If the person is free, he's not enslaved, then of course, it's obligatory upon them. Another condition to know if it's obligatory on a person or not, is that the author, he says, بيبنى بيبنى إن, That the person has to be a resident in a permanent structure. So he's a permanent resident in a land in the sense that he doesn't travel yearly or travel uh, often from that land. That land is taken for him as a permanent residence and he's got a uh, a place that he lives in which is not made of straw. It's not a tent. It's a permanent structure. Okay, this is what it means by in بِبْنَاء And um, so this excludes two types of people. The first of them is the traveller that is allowed to shorten. So the traveller that is allowed to shorten Jum'a is not obligatory upon that person. Just as a quick recap, what are the three conditions for um, a traveller to be able to shorten the Salah from the previous lessons that we took? What are the three conditions for a traveller to be able to shorten the Salah? طيب, the three conditions that we mentioned was that the journey has to be 80 kilometres or more and the travel itself has to be Mubah Meaning that the reason for the travel has to be permissible, and that the person who is traveling, the traveler, doesn't intend to be muqeem, doesn't intend to reside in the destination for more than four days. So, if these conditions are there, then the journey, the traveler, he can shorten. So, the one who is in bibana, of course, this excludes, as we said, the traveler uh, who is going to make qasr. Okay, and the traveler who is going to make qasr is the one who uh, fulfills the three conditions that we just mentioned. And also, it excludes as a second person, obviously, the one who is non-Mustautin. The one who is non-Mustautin are the ones who are non-resident, in the sense that they uh, live in that land, but they always move to different parts of the country. Okay, So they live in the vicinity, they have a residence there of a tent or something of that nature, but it's a type of structure that they can pack up very easily, and they're always moving. So it's referring to the Bedouins, that would be found in the time of the Prophet ﷺ on the outskirts of Medina because it was never reported that the Prophet ﷺ ever ordered the Bedouins on the outskirts of Medina to pray Salatul Jum'a with the residents of Jum'a. So the traveler who can shorten and also the Bedouins who are continually moving every few months or every six months or so, they are also exempt from Salatul Jum'ah. So the Mustawtin, as I mentioned, is somebody who takes a permanent residence in a land and he's in a permanent structure. Ibn Taymi from amongst the Hanbalis he said that it's not a consideration that the uh, that the structure has to be permanent rather what's permanent is the fact that they are residents in that land so the structure itself doesn't have to be a permanent structure it can be that they still live in tents however they are not under the description of being like Bedouins. <coughs> the author he says ismuhu wahidun that the name of this residency which is permanent it has one name what he means here is that uh the place where the people are living whom juma is obligatory upon okay the name is one name that they share so there has to be at least 40 people that are living under the same name so say for example there is a city and it ha- just call it Riyadh. Riyadh like in Saudi Arabia there has to be at least 40 people living in that city or that town or a village that share the same name okay even if the houses تفرق, even if the houses are separated and scattered throughout that uh, vicinity throughout the city throughout the village that doesn't matter but what matters is that the uh, the place is sh- shares one name the author he says Laysa that there shouldn't be between the person who is obligatory upon and between the masjid more than the distance of a farsakh and as we said a farsakh is around three miles distance in journey in walking so what the author is mentioning here he's mentioning that it's obligatory upon people uh, pertaining to the distance and this has two considerations two points that we need to mention the first of them is that If somebody is within the balad, they're within the city or they're within the town or the village. Now, this city, town or village can be a huge uh, village, town and city, right? So between the person and the masjid, they may be up to 10 kilometers or maybe 15 kilometers. But that is not a consideration, meaning to say that no matter how far the person is from the masjid where the Jummah is going to be established, as long as they are within the confines of the city or the town or the village, then Jummah is obligatory upon that person, right? Wherever what the author was specifically speaking about was saying that if a person is outside the city or the town or the village, he lives outside the border of the town, city or village, then if between this person and the closest masjid within the village, town or city is a farsakh is three miles or more, then it's not obligatory upon this person. However, it, if it is less than three miles, if it is three miles or less, then it is obligatory upon the person. So if a person lives on the outskirts of a city or a village or a town, and between him and the closest masjid in that town, city or village is three miles or less, then it's obligatory upon that person to attend that masjid and to pray Jummah there. And the, the deal for the tahdid bil the evidence for the establishing the distance of being one farsakh as being that which is obligatory is taken from the same verse which shows that Jummah is obligatory إِذَا نُودِيَ min مِنْ يَوْمِ ذِكْرِ اللَّهِ oh, you who believe if the call is given to the Salat al Juma on the day of Jummah, then race to performing Jummah. so the, author, the Ulama they say that the call to prayer on a normal day which is not windy and you don't have a lot of noise, it's a silent day, the wind will carry the uh, call to prayer from a, a normal person for the distance of three farsakh at least. Okay, so this is the minimum distance that the call of prayer would be carried. So a person uh, of, of a farsakh, sorry not three farsakh, of a farsakh which is three miles uh, would be able to hear the call to prayer on a quiet day from a Mu'addin who is making the Adhan. So they say based upon this, if the person is within the vicinity of a Farsakh, okay, but he's outside of the uh, city limits or the village or town limits, then that person has to respond. And however, I said that if the person is within the city limits or within the town limits or within the village limits, then no matter how far they are from the Masjid, they have to respond. The author says وَلَا تَجِبُوا عَلَى مُسَافِرٍ سَفَرَ qasr," And we mentioned this already, that it's not obligatory upon the, word, upon the person, the musafir, who is doing a travel, a journey, wherein he is allowed to make qasr, where he is allowed to shorten. Meaning that the journey is 80 kilometers or more, the journey is a permissible journey, it's mubah, and the person is not going to stay at, at the residence for more than four days. طيب Uh, The reason they say this is because uh, they said that it's not found in the sunnah of the Prophet that he would shorten whilst he was on a journey, nor is it found in the sunnah of the Khulafa Rashidin, the rightly guided caliphs, that they shortened on their journeys. Okay, what about those who are naazil fi safrihim? Those who are taking a break in their journey, so they've arrived at a town or a village. And they are taking a break from their journey, and the Jummah is going to be established in that town or village, do they have to attend the Jummah? So the traveller who's taking a break in a town or village, do they have to attend the Jummah because they are travellers? Question to yourselves. Yeah, so if they're going to stay in that place for more than four days, this is a consideration. But in any case, the majority of the Ulama, including the Hanbalis, they say that it's not obligatory upon the person that they has to attend Jummah, even if he is nazil fi safrihi, even if he's one who is only taking a break from his journey. Okay, he's still on his journey, he hasn't reached his destination, but he's at a town or a village just to take a break. So this is known as nazil fi safrihi that the person uh, in this situation, he doesn't have to respond to the call of Jummah. However, Ibn Taymiyyah was from amongst the humbly scholars that said yes, he has to respond to uh, the call to prayer, I mean, the call for Salatul Jummah, because this is a general call, and only those that the text explicitly exempt are those people that are exempted. This is what Ibn Taymiyyah is saying. Okay, so according to the majority, they don't have to. But according to Ibn Taymiyyah, ta'ala, they have to because he says that the verses pertaining to Jummah <coughs> and the ahadith pertaining to Jummah are general, and the only exceptions are going to be made for those whom the Prophet alayhi sallam, explicitly exempted, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. So the author he also says uh, people that are exempted, he says, walā abdin, imra'atin. Also exempt or also Jummah is not obligatory upon is the Abd, the slave or the Imra'ah, or the woman. So upon the slave and the woman, it's not uh, obligatory. And the author also mentioned prior to those two, the traveller. Okay, so these three people, uh, Juma is not obligatory upon them. The traveller, the slave, or the woman. And also we said that the one who lives further than a Farsakh outside uh, the borders of the town or city. Okay, so the person that is outside the borders of the town or city or the village, if he's further than a Farsakh from the nearest Masjid, then that person Jummah is not obligatory upon that person also. The author, he says, Whoever, from amongst these people, that Jummah is not obligatory upon them, right, like the Musafir, or the woman, or the slave, if any of these do attend the Jummah, then their Jummah is valid okay so though it's not obligatory upon them but if they do attend the Salatul Jummah for whatever reason then the Salatul Jummah for them will be valid and this is Ijma'a by Ibn Munzir and others they said the Illa the reasoning is because annaha حضروا, that these people the Sharia gave them takhfif gave them ease so they didn't have to attend However, if they attended of their own volition, they attended of their own choice, then they would be uh, accepted from them and they would be rewarded for it. The author, he says, However, these people, the traveller, uh, for example, the slave and the woman, they are not going to be considered, they are not going to be considered as the uh, required number for al Jummah. So, let's take the opinion of the Hanbalis, for example, that Salatul Jummah requires 40 people who fit the category, who fit the description of Jummah having to be obligatory upon them, right? So, if you have um, a group of them that are attending and they are from the women, they are from the slaves, and they are from the travellers, okay? Um, Then they are not going to be counted amongst the number required, which is 40, for Jummah to be established, okay? These are not going to be counted. Why? Why would they not be counted and considered as being from amongst the num- number, which is 40, for Jummah to be established? Why do you think that they wouldn't be considered in this consideration of the number of 40? As-sent barakallahu <laughs> fiik. May Allah give you good because it's not obligatory upon them. Okay, so it has to be 40 people that Jummah is obligatory upon. However, uh, Ibn Taymiyyah Ta'ala, he says yanaqid bihim, he says it is established Meaning to say that they are considered amongst the 40. Okay, so the madhab says no, but Ibn Taymiyyah From the mujtahid imams of the madhab, he says yes, it is as a second opinion. It is established They are considered from amongst the number The author he says walam and ya umma fiha." So these people that are exempt from Jummah It's if they attend uh, we said that their attending is valid for them but they are not considered to be amongst the number 40. They're not going to be, to be counted amongst the minimum number of 40 for which 40 is required for Jummah to be established. lam And also they are not going be, to be considered to be valid as being Imams. Okay, so the slave, if he attends the Jummah according to this opinion, he cannot be the Imam. And also the traveller, if he attends the Jummah He cannot be the Imam and this is, you know, if you hold this opinion, you can think about, for example, if you have a famous scholar coming to visit you and he's going to be with you for less than four days. Okay, then this scholar is not able to lead your community in the Salah, according to this opinion. Why is this the case? He says because their Jummah is valid for them only if there are 40 people whom it's obligatory upon so inna masahat minhum so their Jummah, these whom are exempt meaning the slave the woman and the traveler these their Jummah is only valid for them as long as there are a group of people uh, 40 or more that Jummah is obligatory upon them so their Jummah, the ones who attend from amongst the women the slave and the traveler their Jummah is only going to be valid if you if they find 40 upon whom uh, Jummah is obligatory. So it cannot be the case that these three can lead those uh, others in Salah. Why? Because these three, their Jummah is only valid by the presence of the forty. And therefore they, these three cannot lead uh, those whom they need to make their Jummah valid in the Salah. I hope that's clear inshaAllah. <inaudible> their Jummah is only valid because they are following uh, those or they are, part, they are now uh, with the group who Jummah is obligatory upon. Right? So if that group wasn't there of the 40 that uh, uh, Jummah is obligatory upon them, then these three who were excused, their Salah wouldn't be valid. Uh, Salatul Jummah wouldn't be valid. So therefore they cannot lead them in the Salah. The author, he says, woman And whoever Jummah is removed from due to an excuse so he's not talking now about the traveler or the woman or the slave okay he's talking about somebody who has an excuse not to attend Salatul Jumu'ah. and we said if you remember that everybody who is excused from Salatul jummah then this person is also excused uh, from Salatul Jumu'ah. okay so whoever is excused uh, from Salatul Jumu'ah, let's say for example a person is sick and he cannot attend the Salatul Jummah. Now, if this person does happen to attend Salatul Jummah, it's difficult for him to attend, but for whatever reason, he forces himself to attend Salatul Jummah, then this person's Jummah is going to be valid for him, it's going to be wajib upon him in fact, and now that he's attended, it's obligatory upon him to remain and to finish the Salatul Jummah with the Imam, unless his sickness gets much worse, to a very dangerous state then in this situation he can leave but otherwise it's going to become obligatory upon him because now he chose not to have the excuse of being excused from al Jummah which was that he was sick he chose to attend therefore it's wajib upon him and also he's going to be considered from the number 40 of those it's obligatory upon why because it's originally obligatory upon him okay but he had a man he had an excuse, a prevention, which was that he was sick. So if he chose to attend, then it's the mania is lifted, the excuse is lifted, the udhr is lifted, and he's considered as being one of those whom originally Jummah was obligatory upon. Okay, So the difference between him and the musafir and the slave and the woman is that upon the musafir, the slave and the woman, uh, Jummah is not aslan obligatory upon them. Jummah is not obligatory upon them. Whereas the sick person Jummah is aslan is originally uh, obligatory upon him, however, he had an udhr, he had an excuse. But he still came to the masjid, therefore, his excuse was lifted. So now it's wajib upon him, and also, and also, he's considered as being one of the 40 uh, required for Jummah to be established, as mentioned by Sheikh Bajabir and others. Uh, nah. And also, he can be the Imam if they wanted him to be so this sick person. The author he says وَمَن Whoever prays Salatul Jum'a and it's obligatory upon him. It's obligatory upon a particular person to pray Salatul Jum'a, right? To attend the Jum'a. However he doesn't for whatever reason and he prays uh, Salatul Dhuhr in the house then his Salat al-Dhuhr is not going to be accepted from him. Why is that the case? Question to yourselves. So there's a person, uh, Salat al is obligatory upon him. He doesn't attend the Salat al Juma and instead prays Dhuhr, okay? Before the Imam has prayed Salat al we're saying that this person, his Salat of Dhuhr is not going to be valid. Why do you think? Taib, the reason is because he's Mukhaatib with Salat al Okay, it's as though he prayed a prayer which he wasn't commanded to pray. He was commanded to pray Salatul Jummah and he wasn't commanded to pray Salatul Dhuhr. So by him praying whilst the Jummah is still taking place, he is going against that which he is commanded. Therefore, his Salat is not going to be valid. The author, he says, la However, if the person is one of those whom Jummah is not obligatory upon, like the traveller or the slave or the woman, then this person can pray uh, salatul dhuhr even if the imam hasn't finished praying salatul juma because it's not wajib upon these people. The author he says, well after hatta imam. However, it's better that they wait until the imam prays. Okay, so the sick person or the slave, for example, uh, it's better that they pray. Uh, dhuhr after the Imam has prayed Salatul Jummah. Why do you think? Barakallah Okay so it's not, that is not the correct answer but may Allah give you good for trying. Uh, so they're going to pray their Dhuhr at home. Okay maybe this is a point I should have mentioned in the question. This is what the author is saying. They're praying their Jum'a, their Dhuhr at home uh, because they're not attending jummah. But what the scholars mean here, what the author he means here is that maybe uh, you know if they wait until the Imam has finished the Salatul Jummah. It may be the case that just five minutes before the Imam is about to finish the Jummah, okay, he's finishing the Khutbah, for example, the sick person all of a sudden gets better. And if the sick person all of a sudden gets better, then now the Jummah is wajib upon him and he can reach the Masjid and catch something from the Salatul Jummah. This is why they say it's better for them to wait until the Salatul Jummah is finished. Because until Jummah is finished, Maybe something will happen to their situation whereby they can still attend the Jummah. The sick person may be cured, the slave, he may be given his freedom at that moment, so then Jummah will become obligatory upon them, as mentioned by Sheikh Fahad al-Mutiri and others. A Mas'ala to mention, uh, before we stop, is that Imam Ahmed he held that if the Masjid is known to delay the Salatul Jummah, way beyond what it should be delayed, okay? and the person is unable to get to another masjid, that's the only masjid he has for whatever reason that he can get to, maybe he doesn't have a car uh, and he knows that this masjid is going to delay it way beyond what is acceptable not in terms of Sharia delay but in se- acceptable in terms of customary norms that it's going to make it very difficult upon me that if I wait for the Imam to establish the Jummah in this situation Imam Ahmed held that the person can pray Dhuhr, he doesn't have to attend the Jummah okay? This is based upon the Hadith of Abu Dar in Sahih Muslim, when the Prophet ﷺ said, "كيف أنت إذا كانت عليك أمراً يأخبرون صلاة الوقتها أو يمتنون صلاة الوقتها?" The Prophet said to Abu Dar رضي anhu, "How is your situation going to be if you have leaders among you that delay the Salah beyond its time?" Okay. Uh, Abu Dar رضي anhu, he said, "ماذا Rasulullah, يا رسول الله? What do you order me with, O Prophet of Allah?" The Prophet ﷺ said, Pray the Salah in its time. Uh, and then later on, if you catch the Salah with them, meaning with the leaders, then pray with them also. And it will be for you a Nafila. But the point from the hadith, the Shahid or the Wajhud from the hadith, is that the Prophet ﷺ is telling the person that if it's going to be delayed for you the Salah from its time, then you should go ahead and pray okay he's telling Abu Dar go ahead and pray and Imam Ahmed said from the hadith that if it's going to be delayed unjustly the Jum'a okay which makes it very difficult upon the people it's delayed uh, beyond the normal acceptable time then the people or the person can pray Salatul Dhuhr. The author he says he mentions a very important point here which is pertinent to many people he said is not allowed if a person is from those whom Jummah is obligatory upon, it's not allowed for them to make a journey on the day of Jummah after the Zawal, okay? After the time when the sun is in the... (coughs) after the time of Zohar has come about. Because that now is the time when the Jummah is going to become obligatory upon the person, okay? Everybody agrees, they have differences of opinions, but they agree that this is a time where Jummah becomes obligatory upon the person to pray. So the person is not allowed to take undertake a journey if Salatul Jummah is obligatory upon him after the time of Zawal because that is when the Adhan is going to be given for Salatul Juma. They say, uh, Exempted from this ruling are two issues. One is if that the person is going to miss their flight, that they couldn't find a flight at any other time except for this time which is after Zawal, okay? If this person is kind of compelled, he can't make the journey at another time, he has to do it at this time, then it's allowed for that person to miss the Jummah, or any other situation like that. Um, the second istithna, the second exemption that the they mentioned, is if that a person knows that the call to Jummah is going to be given, and he's going to travel, however, he knows that on his travel very soon, He'll come to a stop and the people will be praying Jummah there and he will be able to catch the Jummah with them. If he knows that's going to be the situation or, for example, he knows that once he gets to the airport, there's going to be Salatul Jummah at the airport, right? Maybe there's a group of travelers that he's going to meet. They're all going to meet at the same time at the airport and uh, then they can pray Salatul Jummah there, okay? But this again depends upon the opinion. Uh, Can travellers pray pray Salatul Jummah or not? The Madhab said that the travellers they're not to be accounted amongst the number of 40. Let's say for example there are other than travellers there, the workers who are resident, there's going to be at least 40 workers there and Jummah is going to be established, then in this situation then the person can leave and he can go on his travel because he knows when he gets to the airport he can pray Salatul Jummah with those workers etc. Okay, so these are the exceptions from the rule that the author mentioned. That people are not allowed to travel after the Zawal, after the time of Jummah has come in, if Juma is originally obligatory upon them. طيب. So, with regards to traveling before Zawal on Yawmul Jummah, the Mashur opinion in the Madhab is that it's allowed but it's makru, this kiraha, okay, it's disliked. It's allowed but it's disliked, okay. Why is it disliked? because though it hasn't become obligatory, because it's not the time of Zawal, the person knows that he's going to miss Jummah and he's going to miss a huge amount of rewards. So it's something which is makru. Okay? And the evidence that allows the person to travel is found in the Musannaf of Ibn, of um, Abd razak the Musannaf of Abd razak and the Isnaz sahih the Umar anhu, he said, al la that Jum'a doesn't hold back a traveler. That go travel as long as the time the call to prayer is not going to be established. So, this means that the person before the time of Zawal, if it's Yomul Jummah and he needs to travel, then he can do so, but there's going to be Kiraha, it's going to be disliked, okay, because of the rewards that he's going to miss by missing out Jummah. Question to yourselves when might it be haram for this person to travel before Zawal? not after Zawal, before Zawal, so a person, we're saying that a person can travel, okay but it's going to be makruh. however there may be a situation that before Zawal for this particular person it's going to be haram for him to travel and the issue is pertaining to the issues that we have taken for Salatul Jummah, any idea why, why it might be haram for this person? Barakallah Yeah, if he's not able to catch Jummah on his way somewhere, then yes, as we said, that is one of the exemptions, right? That the Ulema mentioned. So that would mean if he's not able to do that, then he's not exempt from from uh, the Jummah, So it would be haram for him. Yes, but that wasn't what I was thinking. Jazakallah khair. But that's a correct answer. So what what I was referring to was that if this person, okay. Sorry, no. What you've mentioned is uh, after. The ulama gave that as an exemption for uh, at the time of Zawal. Once the Zawal has come in, they mentioned that as an exception that a person can travel uh, if he knows that he's going to get the Jummah at the airport or in a town where he's going to stop off. Okay, That was the exemption that they gave for the person who travels at the time of Zawal. I'm saying uh, this: the last thing that the author said that if uh, the author didn't mention it, sorry, that if a person travels, the Madhab says that if a person travels before the Zawal, then it's permissible for him, but it's going to be makru. okay? It's permissible for him, but it's going to be makru. I'm saying there may be a situation where for this person, it's not only makru, it's haram. The situation is that in his town or village or city, for whatever reason, there's only 40 people upon whom Juma is obligatory upon. So all of the others, they may be slaves, they may be women, they may be travelers, right? And uh, Jummah is not obligatory upon those people. And we said that even if they attend, they do not constitute the number of 40 which is required. Because the 40 that is required has to be those that Jummah is obligatory upon. So this man that is travelling now, before the Zawal, in a normal situation, it will be just makru upon him, just disliked. However, in this situation, it's going to be haram. Why? Because this person is the 40th person. Okay, So he's leaving behind him 39 people whom Jummah is obligatory upon them. And so they cannot establish Salatul jumuah without him, and he knows that, okay? So in this situation, the ulama, they said that this person is going to be haram for him to travel because it means that the other 39 people, they won't be able to establish the Salatul jumuah without him. And of course, this is in a situation where it's not an emergency upon the person and that he's compelled to travel. Uh, Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta-A'la knows best if that which was correct. It was a gift from Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta-A'la. The many mistakes and shortcomings were for myself and Shaitan. I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to increase us in knowledge and good and to make what we do heavy in our scales of good deeds, to make us sincere, only doing this for his sake. Ameen. We'll stop here. This was the uh, uh, section pertaining to the, uh, uh, the wujub, the shirutul, uh, wujub the conditions of Jummah being obligatory. Next week we'll start upon the section which pertains to the conditions of Jummah being uh, valid uh, uh, of the validity of Jummah. What are the conditions for Jummah to be valid, okay? If you have any questions, uh, then feel free insha'Allah.